0: Now we refer to it as the five stages of grief and we use it as a model for grieving as well. And for me, like in my experience, that never felt like it fit because like after my dad died, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to buy every single book on grief that exists and I will go to therapy and then I'll be done with it <laughs> and like moving on. And of course that is like not how it works at all. Like it, it just Damn. isn't.
1: hey what's up everybody this is dave thanks for joining bob and i for our podcast thriving in dystopia and even though we always try and be professionals sometimes we swear so just know that going in well hello there dave oh it's gonna be like that this week huh you're gonna introduce stuff Actually, I think you beat me to the punch. Uh, well, anyways, Bob, let's get on with the show.
2: Let's get into it. We got some good stuff today. So, Yeah. You know, we do a little check in. Yeah, let's do a little check in because I know you just spent a little time camping and I'm really eager to hear about that. Yeah, we had a great weekend.
1: We went up to Leadville, Colorado, just outside. And it's right where the Continental Divide is and just went into the woods and spent three nights out there camping and eating and just thinking about what it means to be in nature i'd say the real highlight for me was we went on a pretty uh let's just call it a pretty painless hike and when we got to the lake i was just pooped and i said ah you know what i think i'm just gonna go take a nap and i found the inlet creek and I walked up the creek a little bit and there was this like really luscious piece of grass and I just like laid down there and there was this like incredible aroma of pinewood forest there and I fell instantly asleep and mm. god it was just like the real highlight I feel like that's kind of what camping is you get rid of all the stuff that you really love like or not love but like You have an attachment to like your Vitamix blender and your computer and your email and your phone and you pare down everything. Oh, you get rid of your really nice, comfy bed and then all this new stuff pops up like uh, what you might spend your time doing. Like Julie spent a ton of time journaling and identifying plants and I spent a lot of time sleeping. So it was a great weekend, you know, Mm. Papa Bear needed a little, little bit of rest. Yeah. Ate a little bit too much of that morning porridge, you know?
2: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's an article about how Americans are swarming into the woods or something like that. I'm curious if you saw like a lot of people or what did it feel like in terms of compared to like other years? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the front range here
1: in Colorado is always like, if you go to the, the trails that are super accessible, they're always swarmed with people and that's no different now. It just seems like there's even more people, but even way up there, there was a ton of people and yeah, no one was wearing a mask, which kind of felt funny to all of us. We all had masks on wherever we went and yeah, it was a little bit frustrating to me just because it feels like just because you're at 10,000 feet doesn't mean COVID doesn't exist. And yeah, there's a lot of big groups and as camping goes, there was, we, you always end up next to the, in a spot right next to like a rowdy bunch. So we were in a camp spot where there was literally five Subarus next to us. And of course one Toyota Tacoma. So it was just a rowdy bunch of people, but um, yeah. Nonetheless, it didn't matter too much. I still found my
2: my cozy spot up creek. You know, love it, Dave. Yeah, I, I, I'm jealous. I'm very jealous of that trip, and I'm so glad you took it. Yeah. Thanks, Mom. Did you get in and get into anything great this weekend? Nothing that's outstanding. I just before the show, I was coming back from delivering some mutual aid packets to folks who might need it in downtown Monterey. They're like packets of food, masks, water, um, vitamins, and yeah, it was super interesting because I, you know, I'm thinking about mutual aid like we talked about last week, and I I had a little conversation with someone there. His name was also Bob, and I think it was like a wonderful <laughs> a thing to Bob. do. <laughs> nice. Um, but I wonder about like, you know, not falling into like a charity model or something like that. You know, I want to like get people the things that they need while also like sort of building connections and building webs of connection. Um, mm-hmm. so I've just been thinking about that. I, it was, a, yeah, I feel great about doing it, but I also wonder about like the long um, sustainability of it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited
1: to see the, the mutual aid path with this group that you walked down over the next few months. Yeah. It's always good to, to newness is always so exciting, you know?
2: Yeah, it is. Yeah. I cool. really appreciate them that I found these folks.
1: Well, without, um, dilly dallying too much, even though you never know how much dilly dally and Dave and Bob can do. We have a guest today and I'm really excited to, to get into it this week. So this week we have, uh, a dear friend of ours, Katie Gillespie, on the show. She is, I guess I'll I'll say a little bit of where I met her. I met her in Vermont, in Middlebury, where she currently resides. And she and another friend of ours, Hillary, met through Craigslist and they became roommates. And then as Vermont goes, anyone over the age of 25 and under the age of 40 instantly becomes best friends. And yeah, over the years when I lived in Vermont, Katie was one of those people that's just that real grounding force of our group and she had she's provided a ton of just stability for people in in our friend group in Vermont and she's become so beloved to everybody. And yeah, part of the reason we wanted to have her on the show is because she's studying to be a counselor at the at Northern Vermont University, which used to be known as Johnson State for all those Vermonters. One of the first things that connected Katie and I was the loss of our dad. And it's something that has been a strong thing in my life and in her life. And part of what she's studying at Northern Vermont University is grief. And that is the topic of the show. We're going to be talking about grief, both on a on a personal level, on a global level, and just sort of seeing what comes up in this conversation. So anyways, that is the introduction for Katie. How you doing, Katie?
0: Hi, Dave. That was such a nice introduction. I kind of wish that you could introduce me everywhere I go.
1: <laughs> well, uh, it just sounds like it kind of feels like what Eva would have written up. If, if <laughs> it I does feel like that. I, yeah. I tried to like channel your inner Eva, you know. She's always praising you so much. So I was like, okay, what would Eva say about Katie? Mm -hmm. But she would have gone on for way too long. So that would (laughs) have been the whole show just introducing (laughs) you, you know? Yeah, I I guess one thing I wanted to start with, I don't know how you two feel, but I am really interested in storytelling when it comes to grief and Mm -hmm. loss. Either of you want to tell a story about grief and loss? Because I feel like that is... One of the biggest ways I've healed in my life is hearing other people's stories. And it just feels like a way to open up and become vulnerable pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great idea. And I actually realize I mean, even though we've been friends for a long time now, I feel like I don't know that much about your dad. Um, Mm. Not that you have to talk about that in particular, but if either you or Bob wanted to talk more about your dad, that's something that I would like to hear.
2: I could start. Yeah. I, I, because I was thinking about him this morning. Um, so I'll, I could start Dave and then you could, uh, pick up where I leave off.
1: Yeah. Sounds good. I'll fill in any holes and then. Yeah.
2: So as people probably know, the secretary of education, Betsy DeVos is mandating schools to open, um, next month. And, um, I listened to a little interview of her, of like her rationale and at least on this interview she was saying it has to happen kids just have to go to school in order to learn and so I immediately thought of our dad because actually come to think of it I was fairly strongly homeschooled even though and I think you were too Dave even though we went to public schools but dad in the summers and Weekend and basically any time he could, he would be teaching us. And he specifically taught us Spanish and German. He also taught us um, things like philosophy. He studied philosophy in school, but um, he also taught us like how to cook a little bit and how to clean the house and do dishes and those types of things as well. So I was thinking, like, actually, I think I learned more from my dad than any like single class, even more in terms of like so-called academic skills. So I think, at least in that part, Betsy DeVos's rationale falls apart. Um, and so, yeah, just to situate who our dad was, he, he, he taught us so much and he had Parkinson's disease and he was diagnosed with it in 1981, the year that I was born. And he sort of somewhere along the road shifted his Goals in life to he was a, a theologian and he was working at a church. And he basically shifted because of the disease to be a stay at home dad. And I imagine he went through a process of grief in terms of giving up a lot, um, maybe his previous expectations of himself and his ideas of like what a man should be in society, things like that. But he was an excellent father and he was an excellent teacher and he died in 2012 um, in october and one thing that i'm so grateful for is he it was a degenerative disorder parkinson's disease and he died of um parkinson's related you know symptoms or causes and um so we sort of saw it coming and so mom was able to call us home I was in California, you were in Oregon and we came home and got to spend sort of the last week with dad, even though he couldn't do much. I still remember we watched The Birdcage, one of his favorite movies together and we were all surrounding dad when he he died and we were even telling him that like we love him and he he can go like it's, so we sort of got to say a goodbye that I imagine a lot of people don't and I kind of think that influenced our sort of grieving patterns and yeah i guess i'll just stop my part of it there dave if you want to like add your your story to that
1: yeah i'll just add a little bit i feel like i was prepping for dad's death f- from when i was in elementary school because having been diagnosed in 81 and as i was coming into life and coming into con- consciousness i realized that my dad was sick you know And it was a conversation that he was always willing to have the conversation of death. So he was always like upfront about it. He would say like, this is the disease that will one day kill me. And it, I can't tell you how much like sadness I felt as a little kid. I have like memories of like, I can't believe he's going to die one day. And like all the, the like hardness that a kid feels with that. But it also is like such a blessing to have given me because it's like that confronting death at an age and with so much time. I mean, I got 20 plus years after like sort of coming to recognition with that. And that's in large part due to the fact that he was sort of given a second life with um, getting stem cells in his brain when he got a double transplant in double in 1990. And I feel like there's this idea that like grief I mean grief and loss are so tied together like they are you don't have grief without loss and like the ultimate loss is death of course and I feel like there's this like feeling of like being prepared and as much as we were prepared for like my whole life for my dad's passing and for his in, in, inevitable, inevitable death it was also it happened so quick in the end. So like that in October, it was just like a whirlwind and it felt like every moment was, would stretch on to infinity and it would also just go by so incredibly fast. And it was just, it just felt like I wanted to do everything one last time with him. So like you mentioning birdcage is funny because I definitely remember wanting to play dad guitar and play some of his favorite songs. And I have a memory of doing that. Um yeah. And that's kinda it's about all I really wanted to open up right away.
0: Wow. Yeah, there's so much there. I definitely will like hop into my stuff, but I just wanted to comment on a few things. I mean, first of all, huh? I never got to meet your dad, obviously, but the fact that his favorite movie was The Birdcage, I am so <laughs> excited about that.
2: Um, yeah, I know.
0: That's amazing. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like my loss of Uh, it's interesting because every loss is different and like has its unique elements, but then there are still like these common threads within them all that kind of connect them. So that was like one thing that I was thinking about while you were talking. But I think also that notion of like, it's never possible to really be prepared for what it's like, even when you, you think it is like, I, I remember when I was in college I used to think, okay, what would be the worst thing that could happen? And it would be my dad dying. And I would like make myself think about it and like make myself like plan for what my life would be like. But of course that like did nothing to prepare me for what the actual experience was like. So it was really interesting to hear you talking about like how you were for a large part of your childhood, like your dad was trying to prepare you for that actively and yeah. even still, like even with that, I mean, it it can't really. Yeah,
1: yeah, you can't ever, right? That preparation yeah. is is impossible. And anyways, yeah, you can keep going.
0: Yeah. Um. Okay. So my my dad, um, his name is Ron Gillespie, and he and I really connected over our love of nature and the outdoors. So. Like my parents took me camping for the first time when I was six months old, which I applaud them because that sounds really hard. And um, that was just something that we always really connected on. I loved going fishing with him. I used to love putting the leeches on the hook Um, and everything that my dad did, like I just wanted to be doing. And I also felt like, you know, when I was little, I think he worked a lot. So I felt like I was, I spent a lot of time like trying to impress him and, and, get his attention but probably right when I got to high school we just became tremendously close and I think he of anyone in my life is just somebody that I've felt so seen by like I have throughout most of my life tended to be pretty quiet and soft-spoken and I think a lot of people in my life tended to like push back against that which of course they're trying to connect with me like I get that but my dad it was like one of the few people where silence was like never awkward (laughs) like we drove um i went to grad school out in oregon and we drove from chicago to corvallis oregon together and like probably we said very few words to each other but it was still like the best and he was like a complicated guy i mean he was a vietnam vet and He is similar to something that you had mentioned, Bob, about your dad, like my dad, as he got older, he had, you know, diabetes and um, he had like an existing back injury. So in the last years of his life, he wasn't able to stand or walk for for very much um, at a time before he'd have to sit and rest. And that was like kind of his undoing. It just like broke his spirit to you know his whole life had been about like providing and doing things constantly and that was something that he really struggled with and ultimately I mean dealt with through alcoholism which was a like definitely a complicating factor but he died in 2013 in December so I had been at his house for Christmas Eve and you know he had been great like he wasn't in a lot of pain that day and Um, We had a good time and I went to leave and I just remember him saying like, you know, he was a smart ass, like he was very sarcastic as, as I can be sometimes. And he always called me kid and he said, call me more kid. And I said back, um, well, the phone works two ways, dad. And I felt guilt about that for like a lot of years, but Mm. I actually feel now that that was like very fitting to our relationship. And of course it's like he knew, you know, he had the context of our relationship throughout our life. And even if I didn't get to say the final words, which are that I'm so incredibly grateful to have had him for a father. I mean, just on every level, but I know he knew that, but it it took me a while to get to that place of like, letting myself off the hook for, for that last goodbye that I didn't know was a goodbye.
2: Katie, thank you so much for sharing your story. And yeah, there I'm seeing similarities and, and uniquenesses. And I don't know, maybe we could start here. If there's any sort of framework that you think about in terms of grief that you've been learning in school, or just that kind of idea that we've already been talking about, like preparation for loss. Is that something that I I mean, I think it did help me when thinking about our dad. And then it also, I think you're both right. There's no preparation for the actual specificities of how it happens. Um, But I do think that him talking about death was really helpful. Might contrast his passing with, I lost my advisor to a brain aneurysm the same year, who I Mm -hmm. held very deep, dearly in taught me so much. And and her passing came totally unexpectedly. And I find myself having more like, oh, I wish I told her this, or I wish mm-hmm. I did this. I, I don't have a whole lot of like, I wish I did certain things with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wish he was sort of more here, like for big events in my life, but I don't have like regret as much with him as compared with Um, Erinette who was my advisor so Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know maybe that idea of preparation if that's anything that you've learned or thought about
0: when you mentioned preparation like what immediately came to mind was um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross so she like she actually developed a framework for people who have terminal illnesses or who are faced with like imminent death and she put out like this you know now we refer to it as the five stages of grief and we use it as a model for grieving as well. And for me, like in my experience, that never felt like it fit because like after my dad died, I was like, okay, well I'm going to buy every single book on grief that exists and I will go to therapy and then I'll be <laughs> done with it. <laughs> and like moving on. And of course that is like not how it works at all. Like it, it just isn't. And so I think what I apologize because I'm not going to remember who to attribute this to, but a model that I learned that I think really felt fitting for me personally um, was basically thinking of like three phases. So the first phase is kind of like avoidance or withdrawal, where it's just not real to you yet. And so you cope in whatever way you can. So for me, I like watch Netflix and ate a lot of Oreos and probably like went out drinking with my friends too much. And then the like confrontation phase. So when you like, it finally hits home that this has happened, and you're ready to deal with that like really intense and acute grief phase. Um, And that I think like lasts just differently for everyone. But then the final phase is reestablishment. So this is real, but I, who am I now, like given this new reality? And this was something that Dave, you had uh, mentioned earlier too about like finding meaning. And so for me, mm-hmm. like those three phases really fit. But in terms of preparation, like I don't, you know, I think the Kubler-Ross five stages, which I'm not going to remember all of them, <laughs> but. Oh, I let's think try and do it.
1: You it's do denial, as many as you can.
0: Denial, uh-huh. anger, bargaining. I know are three.
1: Acceptance is the last one, right? Yep. Denial, anger, bargaining. Eh, we're missing one. Depression, Aureos. probably. Oh, depression.
0: Aureos. Yeah. Depression slash Oreos.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, like, those really were intended to be, like, to describe preparation for death. And now we've, like, we use it for grief as well. But, yeah, I don't I don't really think that there is a way to truly prepare. I will say that I I now have become kind of like a grief zealot in that it sounds like, you know, in your experience, Bob and Dave, you talked about death and dying a lot because you had to. And in my experience, and I think for a lot of at least like white people in America, it's like death is not something that we talk about. And so. It's very isolating when you go through that grieving process because nobody has the tools or the skills. Like it's something that we push off and avoid thinking about because it's painful. And so it's like in terms of preparation, I think that's something that can be done is a huge cultural shift into talking about this like most human thing that everybody is going to have to go through at some point. Um, and making it more a part of our dialogue and what we talk about all the time.
1: Yeah, I like that. That sort of pre-healing. Katie, can you talk about the other? I, can you just say those other three stages one more time for me? Not the Kubler-Ross stages, but
0: yeah, that's uh, f- coping. For, uh, the first one is avoidance or like withdrawal. Yeah. Um, and then the next one is so oh, confronting when uh-huh. you're ready to actually like deal with and confront the pain. And then the last one is reintegration where you're like, okay, who am I now? Given that this is the reality.
1: Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. I really like that idea of who am I now? That's the one that I'm, most concerned with i know at least in this moment and partially because it's been you know seven or eight years since our dad's died Mm -hmm. and i feel like there's a lot of that idea of finding meaning and sort of taking this this experience of grieving and not just ending it with acceptance but going on to the next stage which is like re finding our new self and finding what feels like what we've learned from it. And like, mm-hmm. what are the positive, positive things that have come of it? I mean, the truth is there's like nothing positive about death, right? Mm-hmm. Like a hundred percent of what I've learned since my dad has died, I would trade to have him back. You know what I mean? Totally. Nonetheless, death is a final thing and it it's going to happen to all of us. And we're going to have to confront this. We're going to have to find these coping mechanisms at first, but I do like this idea of finding meaning and taking it to the next level and maybe not learning so much as like, yeah, that just the way you put it feels so good. Um, like reintegrating.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, I mean, you hit it, you hit the nail on the head, like it's a both. And it's like, all the best thing, all the things in my life right now, which I love are a direct result of my dad dying. Like I would not have the thing. I wouldn't live in Vermont. I wouldn't be in this counseling program. I wouldn't know you, um, Mm, you know, unless my dad died and it sucks. (laughs) Like it sucks that my dad is not here for the things that, you know, he doesn't know any of the people in my life right now. He doesn't know my boyfriend. He won't see me have children. If I do that, he, wasn't here when I um, I bought a house last year, and he would have he would have been so involved in that process. So it's definitely both. Um, but I'm super curious, like, what meaning have you come to, um, Dave and Bob, since losing your dad?
2: Do you want to go first, Dave? No, I want to go second. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I guess two things. The first is to piggyback on that idea of, like, in someone's passing, that it creates new possibilities, like you were talking about, Katie, like Mm -hmm. moving to Vermont. And our dad's passing definitely brought my mom and Dave and I closer together. Mm -hmm. And a large part of that is because my mom's been so awesome and just she honors my dad so well and always remembers him on his birthday and the day of his passing and Father's Day and finds like these pictures that of our family that I didn't even know exists and sends them to Dave and me. And so my mom has like very much kept his spirit alive. And I think in that, Dave and my mom and I have become closer and that's felt really wonderful. And the second is, it's like, like, I look a lot like our dad and people have always said that. And for whatever reason, I mean, I looked up to him so much when I was a kid and all his interests became my interests, like sports and philosophy and politics. Um, So I'm, I'm like living my dad's life in this way that doesn't feel like a burden i feel like my dad could only take it so far before the parkinson's hit and then i've taken it to you know where i've taken it to and so like living his legacy has felt really good i i think sometimes that feels like a burden to people but for me it feels like a a guiding light and i know that he's always with me so i don't know if that's meaning or just like um just sort of like a And okay. And like, I mean, I guess it is a meeting meaning that living his goals and, and dreams, like, at least in part is, is what I'm doing in my life. And that feels good.
0: Yeah, that's really beautiful.
2: Do you want to go next, Katie, or should I?
0: Either way, doesn't matter to me.
1: I'd like you to go next. I need a little more time to think.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I feel like a totally different person than I was than the person I was when I had a dad who was living um in in every way possible. And I think I think it's all those cliches about how you don't know joy until you know sorrow, I found that to be tremendously true like the range and depth of emotion that I feel and that I am open to now is directly because this experience kind of broke me open. And that has led to more meaning in my life, like deeper friendships and deeper relationships and more vulnerability. So that's been important. And then I just tend to be a person that says like yes to opportunities as they present themselves. And when I was living in Chicago, right after my dad died, I found out about a group for people in their twenties and thirties, who have lost someone significant called the dinner party. And I attended a table there and then I moved to Vermont and there wasn't a table here. And so I started one and co-hosted one in Vermont for about a year. Um, with a friend, Ashley, who now is in Boston. And I found that experience to be tremendously healing just to like be in a room of people who get it. And that kind of opened up a lot of doors, like in the process of advertising for that group, um, the local hospice uh, volunteer group here reached out to me to see if they could help. And then they were like, oh, by the way, we have a hospice volunteer training program starting tonight. Like, would you be interested in that? And I was like, never thought about it, but sure. And so then I became a hospice volunteer, which felt like very meaningful work. And then I realized that all the things I was doing in my free time um, were things that I could actually like incorporate into my life in a more intentional way. And so that's when I made the decision to go back to school for counseling. And that just feels like I found the thing that I'm supposed to do in the world. And so my dad gave that to me. So that feels incredibly meaningful to me.
1: Hmm. Damn. I love those steps. Thanks. I guess I'll answer the question in with a little bit of a story. I feel like when dad passed away, one of my biggest fears was that I wouldn't cry enough Mm -hmm. that 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 loss, like I wasn't going to like feel sad enough. I think that there is like a lot of judgment in death. I feel like we are worried that we're not going to do grieving right, which seems like a silly thing to say, but I know parents that lose their children, they end up getting divorced. And a big part of that is because there's a lot of judgment in how the other person is grieving. And I feel like one of the nice things in this at least, in Bob's story today was the idea that like we as a family um were able not to judge each other for whether or not we were grieving right, quote unquote. Because that's the truth. There is no right way to grieve. And there is no set amount of tears that you have to shed for someone to prove that you love them. Like you don't have to cry a pint of tears, you know? And I think that Really what my dad gave me is that, so the meaning that I found is like this idea that like confronting death is a scary and really shitty thing to do, but it's such an important thing to do. And last year we lost one of our, a student of ours. I'm saying I'm speaking in the we, it's still hard for me to talk about Tilly. Yeah. I lost one of my favorite students and she was just like such a light in all my teaching that I've done and yeah, she was hit by a car and ended up dying three days later and it definitely became what last summer was about. So even though I was running a summer camp in Vermont every week, we would do Thursday Tilly days where we would have circles where we talked about death and we confronted what it means to lose somebody. And I felt like my dad gave me the courage to do that. And I wanted to help this community of a hundred-ish kids grieve together and I wanted to find space for these kids to grieve each week and for and for the family too. Her brother was in our camp and I still play D&D online with her brother and he's just like such a great kid and the family is so great. But it's tough when you lose so, someone so young in a community so small as Middlebury and yeah, I just feel like so grateful for my dad's willingness to confront death and to help me take that step to not be afraid because we need to talk about it. Yeah, tears need to be shed and they'll still be shed each each week for Tilly and I still know that there's a lot of healing left to be done, a lot of coping, a lot of confronting and a lot of reintegration left to happen, you know?
0: Yeah. Wow. I, yeah, I didn't know that you kind of had like a grief support group for those kids. That's really neat that you did that.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a huge part of last summer for sure. And I, it was so beautiful though. Like in the end, the last week of camp, we went to her, the graveyard where she's buried and we invited her family to be there. And it was just like such a good experience for her friends to be there with her family and to sort of, Be able to wrap our arms around each other and yeah i don't know that's like that messy feeling of coping that Mm -hmm. is easy for us to not is never easy for us to get past um and one where we need to like yeah just eat those donuts we drink so much milk and (laughs) ate so many donuts on that day like i mean that's what it was for tilly we would just like she loved chocolate milk so much so we would just like buy gallons of chocolate milk on thursday And just like have those messy, messy days of eating, watching Netflix and eating ice cream, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's such an interesting point too, because it's like, we're never done like the way that we grieve. And I think the intensity of grief changes, but you're never finished grieving. Yeah. Which I think is both beautiful. And I remember like right after my dad died, um, my best friend from childhood her mom took me out to lunch because she had lost her mom when she was 30 which is how old i was and i'll never forget that lunch because it it felt so supportive but she also i mean she sobbed and you know this had been like almost you know 20 or 30 years for her and to see that like that level of emotion never goes away was daunting like i remember just thinking like i'm gonna be this sad forever
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh man yeah my mom talks about the idea of how every every loss that we experience in our life piles up on it on each other Mm. and that these moments of grieving are really important for us to feel because we're going to feel more of them and every time we experience a new loss, like I can't tell you how much I thought about my dad last summer when we lost Tilly and it's just like every loss we feel in our lifetime gets compounded. And I want to like, that's, it just, it's not done. The work is never done and the healing is never done. Um, but the beauty is also never done. Like the gifts that our, our dads have given us mm-hmm. and those things are to be treasured and to held on to forever because we are like Bob is like a walking, a walking version of our dad, uh, Robert Mazler senior junior. Um It's just like, yeah, we are, we are our parents' legacies in a lot of ways. And it's mm-hmm. a lot to be, it's a lot to sort of bite off, but it's also like so beautiful to think of that we get to do this. And it's nice that Bob, you found a lot of, hope in that you know
2: yeah it does feel like um just like a north star rather than like uh any kind of burden yeah i wonder if we could sort of pivot the conversation to thinking about the current society and in the pandemic people talk about like um, and this feels real to me, like things that we won't ever do again or ever do the same way or maybe for, for a while. And if that, if the like the lessons we can learn from grieving can help us in terms of, I don't know, being more flexible or resilient or thriving, I guess, to use the terminology of our show within this dystopia. Um, and if you all have any ideas on that, maybe one thing that it strikes me is I, I guess I'm grieving not being able to play soccer. Um, I was on a soccer team and I find myself missing that and and i have been able to do something that i wasn't doing at all before the pandemic which is going jogging three times a week and i'm feeling a lot of or finding a lot of joy in that jogging and it it doesn't fully scratch the itch of playing soccer but it is something new and i'm very grateful for it and um yeah how if you two have any thoughts on like the collective grieving in, in a time of pandemic
0: Yeah, I think that's such a great way to put it because I think that's exactly what's happening. Like we're grieving our lives as we knew them. And I think a thing that I have noticed, um, like after my dad died, people would be like, oh, well, I don't want to complain about this to you because it's like nothing in comparison to what you're going through. And I think I see that happening a lot now, like people kind of going with that notion of like, oh, but there are so many other people who have it worse And yes, absolutely, that's true. But I think, you know, we have to let ourselves feel what we feel, like feel the loss of like not being able to connect with your friends through soccer, like even though you can still get the physical exertion part, like the competition and the communal aspect of that is gone. And so like, of course, that sucks. And like, let ourselves have that. Um, I think also like the importance of ritual with grief is, is super important. And I think it's a thing that's really tough right now because, you know, for people who are experiencing loss right now, they're, you know, not able to have funerals or all of the things that we do to like mark the end of something like graduations or people who retire and like don't get to like see their co-workers again like all of those things I mean I think we've got to let ourselves have that have that hardness and um, really feel that and know that we won't stay in that phase forever we'll eventually get to the phase where we're like okay how can we move forward like how can I design some sort of experience for myself that incorporates those things that I've lost but I think We can't skip over the hard part and, you know, just go straight to that, like reintegration or straight into that, like put a positive spin on it. I think it's really important to, you know, recognize that it's, it's hard right now.
1: Dang. Yeah. Took the words right out of my mouth, Katie. Love it. (laughs) Um, well, you took them out of my mouth and then made them real nice and pretty. So that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Um yeah, the only thing I feel like I want to add is like I know like even within our friend group and even <laughs> I guess even within our friend group because I sometimes do this, I'm waking up like feeling super sad or like feeling like depressed. And I'm like feeling this collective grief that we're all going through. And yeah, I mean one of the things that came up for me is this idea of hot springs. Hot springs are like this beautiful thing that, um, holds just such a special place in my heart and yeah, we, I just feel like I'm not going to be able to go into a community hot springs again, where I'm like sharing a pool with a bunch of strangers that I've never met before. And I don't know where they've been. I don't know how long they've been in quarantine before coming to the hot springs. And so it's just like, it's a sense of loss, right? And we've all lost something with this pandemic like there is no denying that everybody has lost a a little piece of what they know to be normal and we're all craving to go back to that normal and one of the things we've talked about on this show is creating that new normal and that is something that has given me a lot of hope and i've or you know in the parlance of today's show i found a lot of meaning in that where i'm like holding on to this idea that like you know if i have to give up soaking in hot springs to help the BLM movement succeed or help the defund movement like come up. Like this is like a, a true meaningful moment for us. And this like is like this pivotal moment in the dystopia that we live in to, to sort of like use this pain that we're all feeling and try and create action from it. And I know that I like, there's days where I wake up and I'm messy and I just want to, you know, drink some chocolate milk with Tilly and watch some Netflix and that's okay too. But I'm definitely like in this like really strange period where I'm in flux of like wanting to like be, take this, all this pain and use it as fuel and motivation for creating meaningful social change. And yeah, then there's days where I just want to just drink that chocolate milk.
0: Definitely. I mean, it's like not linear, you know,
1: Yeah, Um, yeah. not
0: a straight uphill climb, even if we wish it was.
1: Oh man. I loved your Instagram post the other day, Katie, you had the, like every feeling of grief and it Mm -hmm. was like this beautiful little, uh, parabola, like a little, um, arc and like it would label each feeling and it felt really linear. And then you, your next post was your feelings towards grief. And it was just like a giant scribbled mess of all the bullshit that you feel and like how you feel them one day or the next, you know?
0: Yep. Yeah. But I I think that's such a good point. I mean, we're realizing now more than ever, the ways in which our systems are broken and the ways that they don't serve people. And so it is a time where, you know, we have more time at home. We have more downtime. And so, yeah, like definitely let's use that time to change the systems because they don't have to stay broken.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Are there any final thoughts that
2: um, Bob or Katie have? I've, I feel like I'm done with all my thoughts. I, I don't have anything more exactly. I just really appreciate the the depth of this conversation and uh super appreciate katie coming on and really beautifully articulating a lot of um yeah just challenging well first giving us a framework and then articulating challenging uh like places in grief that um just so often go unspoken
0: yeah I don't have anything else to add other than that I'm grateful for both of our dads because that's like, that's literally why we're here tonight.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's beautiful. Um, Well, anyways, um, I don't have much for the tuned in section. So Bob and Katie, do you want to start us off on what you're listening to? I guess I have something of course,
2: but yeah, I guess I, I, had mentioned in that intro. I'm not sure that we're going to keep it or not, but I watched Eurovision and it's not as bad as you think it might be. It's a pretty good movie. Um, it's on Netflix and I also, there's a, a great, um, abolition zine from abolition journal that we'll link to, um, that gives us like sort of abolition uh, study group syllabus in six weeks that I think is really fantastic. So I want to link to that as well.
0: Cool. I am on week two of that syllabus and it's great. Yay. (laughs) Um, Sweet. Synergy. I'm really obsessed with the, it's an HBO or I think it's on BBC as well, but Sorry, I just got a new notification. <laughs> Apologies for oh, that noise. Okay. Um, but the show I may destroy you, and it's about rape and sexual assault. So it's a really um, difficult but important show, and I think it fits well with our theme of like facing facing those hard things head on.
1: Nice. Yeah. Uh, for my bit I was recommended a new podcast to listen to and I absolutely adored it. I listened to it on the way back from the mountains today. It's called Scene on Radio and I bet both of you have heard of it already, but yes. it is yeah. it is so fucking good. Um uh Kitty, my mother-in-law recommended it to me and I just was blown away by everything that everything that it was about. So, um it's very produced. It's a, a lot uh, better quality than the current podcast you all might be listening to. But um, <laughs> that being said, it doesn't have the heart. No, it does have the heart, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? I also have a game, I realized, that I want us to play. Would you, would you guys be up for a quick little uh, Will Shorts-style Sunday puzzle game real quick? <laughs> of course.
0: I'm a begrud- um, begrudging yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, Katie. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay. So it's not a competition. Just to let you know, um, you are not competing against each other. We'll each get two clues. And I'll, what I have done is yesterday when I was in the woods taking a nap, I thought of New York cities, or sorry, New York cities. I thought of U.S. cities and I. Saw Scr- scrambled them around to make new words. So, what you have to do is you have to take the new the words that I give you and make a U.S. city out of them. And I'll give you an example, just as Will Shorts does. Okay. Um, so, for example, yen work becomes New York. Uh, uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yep. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. Um, Katie, would you like to go first as you're the guest?
0: Yeah, I'll give it a shot.
1: Okay. The word is nerved
0: oh uh wait is it cities or states
1: it's it's cities oh denver denver nice katie um all right bob you're up next are you ready yeah i'm ready okay your word is late set
2: is it seattle
1: yeah, it is Seattle.
0: Nice. nice. All
1: right, Katie, are you ready for your next one? Yep. All right. This one's pretty hard, so don't feel bad. <laughs> okay. um, this city is tuna. Your word is tuna.
0: Wait, so tuna is the only word?
1: No, is tuna.
0: Oh, is tuna?
1: Is tuna. Hmm. I can give you a hint too if you yes. need it.
0: Oh wait, is it Austin?
1: Oh, oh yes, Katie, yes. done coming through. <laughs> um, all right, Bob, you ready for your your second clue, second and final? I'm ready, Will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. So I actually I liked the way this the word describes the city, um, but it's not a true fit. So it's actually missing a letter. So you're gonna have to add a letter, okay, Bob? Okay. So the word is rotten, and it's missing one letter. And you can help him out too, Katie. If if you huh. can think of anything. So it's a seven-letter city. It's on the east coast.
0: Uh no, wait.
1: I'll I'll give you a hint. The oh wait, no, that... I
0: know, I know. Can I say you got it, it? trenton Yeah, Go for it, Katie. Trended, <laughs> Katie.
1: Oh man, begrudging, begrudging. I actually this have is, one more. Do you get this. Is like
0: been my entire experience with you, Dave. Is like Dave always wants to play a game, and I never want to play it. <laughs> and then I always have fun, and I'm always glad I did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that good. sounds about
1: right. <laughs> um, okay, I have one final one. It's also missing a letter. And you guys can both just call it out if you get it. I'll just do it as a hint. Um, the word is lust. L-U-S-T. Tulsa? Tulsa. Nice. nice. Uh, Damn. You guys, I, I kind of feel like that was amazing.
2: Watching That you was guys really good. Work. If Katie yeah. can take care of the East Coast, I'll take care of the West. <laughs>
0: Deal. <Okay>. Deal.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. That's great. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks for playing that game, Katie. But more than anything, thanks for uh, willing to be willing to chat with Bob and I.
0: Thanks yeah, so much. This is awesome,
2: Katie. Thanks yeah.
0: so much for having me. I listen every week. So now it's fun because I don't have to listen to this one. I listen. <laughs> no,
2: come on.
1: You're still going to want to listen, right?
0: <laughs> no, I will not.
1: Okay, good. Yeah. Well, um, oh, yeah. Coordinates. Are oh, yeah. Are you willing to... Um, Chat with people, Katie, if, if they want to.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely, always.
1: Yeah. Um, how can people get in touch with you?
0: Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Gillespie Cat. So G I L L E S P is in Peter I E K A T two three. Michael Jordan. Yep.
1: Nice. And the coordinates of the show. You can email us at Dave Peachtree. Or get at the Twitter Bmaze19, or follow us on Instagram. How many Instagram people? Just, oh, wait, it's thriving underscore in underscore dystopia. How many Instagram people do we have, Bob? Um, I think we have forty-nine. Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> who no, is going to be lucky end. number fifty? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love it. That's great. Um, well, love you so much, Katie, and thanks so much for being on here.
0: Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Hey, what's up, y'all? Bob and I just want to take that second and thank you all for those years that you keep on lending us. It seriously means the world to us, and we couldn't, and we wouldn't be doing this without you. So thanks so much. We also want to thank the artists for making our podcast a little bit more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford, and our new outro song is called The Time for Action by Kennedy. And as always, that. Prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine did our thumbnail art. Well, we'll see you next Tuesday, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Action! Action!
2: Action! Action! Ligeranamente, la crudeza y verdad la vivimos en el presente, tirados sin piedad y perdidos entre la gente en esta realidad, esperando pacientemente. El cambio ya se siente. Te mienten. Los que dicen ver una grieta, presentan argumentos sin evidencia concreta. Hacen de todo un cuento para que se arriesgue al lado. Un mensaje para eso números el número están superados. Tantos de mi clase que no tienen donde ir Sin nadie que los ampare, ni razón para existir Odiándose entre ellos al no poder recurrir A un sistema que los mata y solamente quiere huir Se niega a abrir los ojos, a ver tantas injusticias La calle es color rojo y nunca salen las noticias Manipulan a su antojo, nos dejan en la inmundicia Pero ahora su despojo va a ser la única primicia